Hello, this is the next in my series of studies in John's Gospel. I don't know if you know what your first words were. I don't think I can remember what my first words are. Perhaps I need to ask my mum, see if she remembers. One of the things that I read this week, which I hadn't quite grasped until I looked, saw it in black and white, is that it's quite interesting that the first words of angels or of God in, when he encounters people are very often the same. In other words, in the Bible, the first words of the voice of God into people's lives tends to be the same phrase. And this is the phrase, do not be afraid. And I want to just explore how we feel about fear. Basil King says this, when I say that during most of my life I have been the prey of fear, I cannot remember the time when a dread of one kind or another was not in the air. In childhood, it was the fear of going to bed. Later, it was the fear of school. Later still, a fear of dismay at the amount of work to be done before nighttime. Then there was the mother afraid for her children, the executive afraid for the business, the clerk afraid for his job. And there's the fear of failure, the fear that someone will do us harm, and the fear that we may lose what we love most. In one form or another, fear dogs every one of us. And God's first words are, do not be afraid. Now, sometimes people hear that as a rebuke, and I'm afraid some Christians teach it as a rebuke. But I'm convinced it's a reassurance. We're going to hear one of the times when Jesus says, do not be afraid. You may remember that Jesus has fed the 5,000 men and women and children on top of that, and that the people responded by wanting to make him king, but that Jesus withdrew to be by himself. He wanted to get away from the noise and the expectations and the clamor of them wanting to make him king. And that this withdrawing wasn't an isolated event, but it was something that Jesus did regularly. And so that's what we looked at in our last talk. So Jesus has withdrawn. When the evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. What happens when I'm looking at these studies word for word is I notice things I've never noticed before. And the first thing that struck me about this story is why did they set off without Jesus? Now, thankfully, Mark gives us the answer. In Mark's account of this story, it says Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to be in Bethesda when he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. So it's very clear from Mark's account that Jesus has sent them as part of this process of withdrawing that we looked at last time. He needed to be alone, and he didn't want them hassling him and saying, come on, Jesus, we need to go. There's a crowd waiting for us at Bethesda. He wants to be free of that pressure, so he tells them to get into the boat and go ahead of them. Now, of course, he knows what he's going to do about it, but they don't. But in faith and obedience, they set off without seeing Jesus. And I wonder if there are times when we've felt and sensed and understood that Jesus was asking us to do something and we couldn't see how it was going to end. We couldn't see what God was doing. We couldn't see how it could be reconciled or resolved. 
Maybe they understood why. Maybe they understood that he needed to be alone. Or maybe they didn't understand. And maybe there are times when we don't understand what God is doing and why he's asked us to be in this place or to do this job or to set out almost in a way that feels without him. You can imagine the feelings of the disciples as they're rowing across the lake. And particularly in verse 18, we read, a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. Now, they were mostly fishermen and they would be, in some sense, prepared for that, but it's still an uncomfortable experience. And certainly, those who work with the water are acutely aware of its dangers. Now, verse 19 tells us that when they had rowed about three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. They were frightened of this figure walking across the water to them. Why were they frightened? Well, perhaps it was because they thought they were imagining something. Perhaps they thought this was a ghost. Perhaps they thought Jesus had died and this was a ghost of Jesus. Perhaps they figured this was some kind of evil spirit, some kind of uh, horrible manifestation. Perhaps they were simply afraid that they were going mad, that they were seeing something that was impossible. I think fear is completely natural because they had no idea what was going on. This was beyond their frame of reference. This was not within their understanding. And so it was perfectly natural for them to be frightened. And this is where I want to be clear about some things I've said over recent months on a number of different occasions. I believe that God created human beings to be afraid. It's a God-given quality and attribute. It's a safety device. It's like feeling pain or hunger. It tells us that there is danger. It tells us that we need to do something about what is making us afraid. But like other natural feelings, for example, hunger or self-preservation or sexual desire, all natural God-given desires, like that, fear needs to be controlled. It needs to be in the right place. Our hunger can take hold of us and be unhelpful and we can overeat, eat the wrong things, put on too much weight. Our self-preservation can get out of control and cause a real self-centeredness, a real selfishness and cause us to not care for or, or protect other people. Our sexual desires can get out of control and cause us to be unfaithful or promiscuous. So it is with fear. It is in itself a good, godly thing. But it needs to be managed and contained in the right way. So let me spell that out a little bit more. Fear is good when it causes us to recognize and avoid danger. When it causes us to look right and left and right again before we cross the road. When it causes us not to eat that mushroom that we've just found growing in the woodland when it causes us to avoid people who we recognize may be out to harm us. And fear can cause us to prepare, and that's a good thing. We're afraid of giving a talk, my common experience, so I prepare. I think about what I'm going to say. We may be afraid of a meeting or a confrontation or a discussion that we need to have with somebody, so we think about what we're going to say. We may be afraid of falling off a ladder uh, when uh, 
decorating a, a, a room. And so we prepare. We make sure the ladder is in a firm, strong place. We make sure perhaps that somebody's holding it. Fear can cause us to prepare, and that's a good thing. Fear can also cause us to repent. We're fearful of meeting God and trying to justify our own behavior. We're fearful of the day of judgment. And so we say, Lord, have mercy on me. We own up and recognize what we've done wrong in our lives. And that's why there is an element where the Bible talks us to be afraid or fearful of God. Not because he's unpredictable, but because we ought to be afraid of meeting Jesus unprepared. And so the fear of God causes us to revere him, to honor him, and to make sure that we don't turn up at heaven expecting to be uh, given access and entry just on our own merit and our own works. The fear of God says, Lord, I need your forgiveness. I like the story of the school teacher who had been practicing with the school orchestra and preparing them for a, a concert for parents. And the, uh, the, the teacher was a little bit afraid that the children weren't quite, quite ready and suggested to the head teacher that perhaps the concert could be delayed in some way or another. But the head teacher said, no, we're going to go ahead with it. All the parents are going to come. It'll be great. It'll be fine. But this uh, teacher who was a conductor had a little bit of fear and this fear manifested itself by saying to the children uh, just before the start of the concert you know don't be afraid children it doesn't matter if you if you're not really sure uh, just pretend those of you who are frightened of making playing the wrong notes just pretend of course this was the teacher's fear being manifest just pretend and as the uh, head teacher introduced the school orchestra and uh, the teacher raised her arms or his arms to conduct the orchestra, there was complete silence because all the children were afraid and decided to pretend. And that's sometimes the problem with fear. So I want to explore where fear is damaging, where it's unhelpful, when it can be bad. And the first one is like that story where it causes paralysis. It stops us doing anything. It stops us moving forward. We become like rabbits in a headlight. And we're not growing. We're not developing. We're not even attempting to move and do something. We retreat in fear. And fear is bad when it is unfounded. And it therefore distracts us from doing what God wants or intends for us. And the fear isn't real. Or the danger isn't as great as we imagine. But we change, we alter, we take aversive behavior. We respond in a way that is not the way God wants because we're afraid of something that God would say, yeah, but that's not what's going to happen. And so fear is bad where it changes our behavior unhelpfully. Well, maybe the fear is legitimate, maybe it's unfounded, but in either case, when it causes us to behave in a way that's not good. For example, it may be avoidance. We run away, we don't face that person, we don't have that conversation, we don't speak out for truth and justice, we don't stand up for those who are being oppressed. It may be that the unhelpful action is that we give up. And we just say, oh, I can't do this anymore. It's too stressful, too scary. It may be that the unhelpful action that fear causes is resentment. And we resent people 
because they make us feel afraid. Or maybe anger. Or maybe we try and manipulate people. And there are times when we need to just reflect on our life and ask ourselves, has fear taken hold of me and causing me to behave in a way that's not as Jesus would be? It's not what God wants for me. Whether the fear is legitimate or illegitimate, the issue is that my response is unhelpful. And sometimes fears get exaggerated and it robs us of peace. And we are no longer able to sense or feel God's presence in the way that he wants. And we hurt and damage other people. So what is Jesus' response to their fear? But, it says, but he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Now, there is no sense in my understanding of this text of rebuke. He's saying, look, you're frightened, but it's I. He doesn't tell them off. He's telling them that there is no need to be afraid. He's bringing reassurance, not condemnation. That's why the angels always begin with do not be afraid. They're bringing reassurance, not condemnation. He says, it is I. He, bring, he brings a word of revelation. Now, a lot of the writers link this into the word for God, which was Yahweh, which is I am who I am. And every time Jesus talks about I, people feel there's a reference to him using the name of God, a bit of a word play in that. Very possibly true. But he brings the words of revelation. It is I. He reveals who he is. And I went through the rest of the Gospels and just looked at the number of times that either the angels or Jesus respond to the fear of those who are following Jesus. And maybe we just want to hear these words of revelation. These are the kind of words that Jesus says to us when we're afraid. These are the kind of words of reassurance. If you're watching the video, you'll see the reference. If you're listening to the podcast, just hear these words as they sweep over us. These are the words of Jesus to the people who seek him, who follow him, but are experiencing fear, legitimate fear, fear of the unknown, fear of not being sure what is going to happen or what they should be doing. These are his words. Your prayer has been heard. You have found favor with God. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. From now on, you will fish for people. You are worth more than many sparrows. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. 
I'm going to pause here just to explain that verse because it really struck me as very powerful. These are, he says, when you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. And we hear of wars and uprising, and sometimes we hear people say it means Jesus is about to return. And actually what he says is the end will not come right away, but don't be afraid. These things have to happen. Anyway, that was a bit of a digression. Let's hear the rest of his words that he says to those who are afraid. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. He is not here. He has risen. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My father's house has plenty of room. If that were not so, I would have told you that I'm going there. Why why would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And again, Jesus says, finally, as he uh, sends the disciples out and ascends to heaven, peace be with you. Peace be with you, he repeats. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. You see, Jesus comes to those of us who are afraid. It's a common condition. It's a normal experience, actually, of uh, encountering God. And his overwhelming response is, I'm going to give you peace. You don't need to be afraid. I am with you. I'm sending you out. And you will be with me in heaven. And that leads us on to the second response of Jesus to the disciples as they're afraid and they see him walking across the water, is that he comes alongside. And that's how Jesus brings peace. He comes with us into our situation. Now, in John's account, Peter doesn't get out of the water and uh, try to walk with Jesus. All of that is told by the other disciples. So we're just going to stick to John's account. Because the next thing uh, he uh, says to them is very interesting. He says to them, it is I, don't be afraid. And then in verse 21, it says, then they were willing to take him into the boat. They were willing to take him into the boat. And it's this idea that there was some sense of choice. They could have rejected this comfort. They could have turned their back, but they were willing to take him into the boat. And I want to suggest that to receive the peace of God that he wants to bring to us in our fears is we need to be willing firstly to cry out to Jesus and to express and be honest about our fears, not to hide them, not to fear that they are sinful in some way, but to acknowledge them as part of our humanity and to bring them to Jesus. And then to listen to his words. And that's what the disciples do. They listen to him saying, it is I. They responded to that and they invited him into the boat. And we need to hear the words, those words that I read just a little bit earlier, the words of comfort and promise, the words of Jesus who is alongside us, telling us that he will be with us through that which we fear. And they follow his instructions. He says, it's I, let me into the boat. They say, yeah, come on in. 
And the particular thing I want to draw your attention to is that they let him into their place of fear. They do not push Jesus away because of their fear. They receive him and they let him in. And we need to open our fearful hearts to Jesus and allow him into that place of fear. In honesty and openness, we allow him into the boat. We're perhaps familiar with the story of about where people say it's about getting out of the boat, but John tells us that this the story from his angle is about letting Jesus in. And then we need to be willing to go with Jesus where he wants to take us. That's important because of the next verse. It says, then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Now, I've never noticed this before and I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk to me about this miracle. It's clearly a miracle. We were told they were about three, three and a half miles out, which meant they weren't near the other side. But immediately the boat moves. This isn't the calming of the storm. This is the moving of the boat. Jesus brings a miraculous, safe arrival because they were willing to let him into their life of fear. They were willing to let him in. So our questions for reflection are these. Where in our lives is fear wise? And where has it become unhelpful? destructive, damaging, paralyzing, causing avoidance, causing us to hurt and damage other people. And how can we be willing to let Jesus into our fears, into our boat, with openness and prayer and honesty before God and saying, Lord, you know I'm fearful of this person. You know I'm fearful of this consequence. You know I'm fearful for health or for my children or for my future or for my work. Lord, will you come into my place of fear and bring your presence? And the third question is, what words of comfort do we need to hear? Let's pray together. Lord, we acknowledge our fears before you and we thank you that you say, do not be afraid, not out of fear but, or rebuke, but out of compassion and concern. We thank you that you invite us to receive your peace and you invite us to invite you into the boat. Lord, will you come and inhabit our fears and bring order Help us to use them constructively and help us to have your peace. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Where is fear wise and where unhelpful in our lives? How can we be willing to let Jesus into our fears? What words of comfort do we need to hear? Amen.